If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Because this podcast is primarily listener-backed, and we hope to keep it ad-free, we do need your direct support today in order to continue the show. Join us starting at just $2 a month, like treating us to a cup of coffee or tea, or make a one-time contribution at greendreamer.com support. Sustainability does not bring in with it that imbalance or that wobble or even the importance of disintegration and death and decay and composting, you know, and regeneration. I love how the word regeneration really includes the whole life cycle. Sustaining really is rooted so much, the way it's interpreted at least in modern America, it is so rooted in this idea of progress and evolution and continuing the status quo. And that's to me really a massive part of the problem. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Melissa K. Nelson, an ecologist, writer, editor, media maker, and native scholar activist. As professor of American Indian Studies at San Francisco State University and the president of the Cultural Conservancy, her work is dedicated to indigenous rights and revitalization, native science and biocultural diversity, ecological ethics and sustainability, and the renewal and celebration of community health and cultural arts. I am a mixed race indigenous ecologist and I studied ecology because it is really the art and science of interrelationships. So all of my work is very much focused on interrelationships between peoples and places. With my mixed background, I have Native American heritage from my mother, Anishinaabe, Cree, and Métis. I also have settler white heritage uh, from my mother from the French side, the Métis French, and then my father is Norwegian. So I think being able to navigate multiple heritages like many of us these days gives us the ability to really embrace multiple ways of knowing and seeing. Sometimes it's in conflict, sometimes it's in confluence, in consonant. So that work of looking at mixed history, different forms of history, different forms of identity, complexity, really is all part of ecological systems. And so my love of diversity and complexity is for humans and for the natural world. And of course, from my Ojibwe worldview, we do not make a, a sharp contrast between those relationships of human people and plant people or animal people. So I think wanting to learn more about my rich in heritage, my indigenous heritage, really led me down a path of studying also indigenous studies, both academically, but also personally, by being of service to indigenous communities, the lands that I lived on, 
and live on in California. So my homes are my ancestral homes of northern North Dakota, southern Manitoba. The Turtle Mountains are my sacred mountains where my mother and father come from multiple generations. My sacred places are the lands of the Kato, Sinkion, and Yuki people, also known as Mendocino County of Northern California, where I spent my first 18 years. And I strive to be a good settler or a good neighbor, a good accomplice on the lands of the native California Indian peoples. And now I have a new home where I'm learning to be a good neighbor, ally, accomplice in the lands of the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, the Akimel Atum and Pipash peoples of the Salt River Valley, also known as Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm a professor of indigenous sustainability at Arizona State University. So those are my places and some of my peoples. I've been very involved with community-based activism through the Cultural Conservancy, an indigenous rights organization I've been a part of for 30 years. So that is also part of my community, the intertribal community of Northern California. Thank you so much for sharing this rich background of yours. You've shared that climate change is a symptom and not the problem. And this is something that I really, really resonate with because I also question a lot of the subtle language around dominant climate discourses, even things like people who are most vulnerable to climate change, which kind of poses climate change as the problem to fend off that people have to fight against versus something like people who are actually most in tune with the symptoms and changing dynamics of the land that require and call for deeper listening and deeper listening as well to those who are most in touch with every diverse landscape and their messages and their needs. You've mentioned that by recognizing that climate change is just a symptom, it invites people to dig deeper to look at the root causes. And as you've named, this is my paraphrase and interpretation, that the ways things have become out of balance over decades and centuries are what need to be addressed. And therefore, there aren't going to be any straightforward and quick fixes. This all really speaks to me as well, though something that I've been really pondering about and trying to unravel and unpack is the word and idea of balance. What balance refers to, what it means when even historically everything has been in constant motion and transformation, including the configuration and entanglements of life everywhere, even the cultures and stories and storytelling and knowledges. So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I would be curious to hear you speak more to the idea of balance or out of balance and what we can apply this to in order to better understand the symptom of climate change. Mm, thank you. Beautiful question. And, and you summarized well my perspective on that and sharing that message about the symptom, not the cause being climate change. And in terms of balance, you point out to a great point that when most people think of the word balance, they think of stasis or stationary, or lack of change, or something that is solid. To be in balance, just like being on two feet, being bipedal organisms, we lift up one foot, we sometimes are out of balance, and that we have two feet to balance us, And but balance means that we're often out of balance. So for me, when I use that word balance, it's more like a dance. It's more about working with change. Change is the only constant, as so many of the perennial wisdom traditions have said, as well as scientists. So change is the only constant. So it's not a matter of staying the same or stasis or stopping or that we're always equally balanced. It's a constant kind of maneuvering dance between, I would even say, harmony and disharmony is another way of looking at it or discord and consonant from more of a musical metaphor. So Indigenous peoples through our original instructions, you know, strive for, we talk a lot about balance and harmony because it's a harmonization. It's more of a verb rather than a noun. Mm -hmm. It's an active process of awareness, consciousness, presence, vigilance, even to see where we get out of balance 
and to strive and harmonize for balance. Just like when we walk, when we are in an intimate relationship with another human being, we know it's not constant harmony or balance. There's often disharmony and imbalance, but that we have a commitment to that dance and to that harmonization process so that there can be times of deep and profound resonance and harmony, but we know that that includes deep moments of disharmony and discord and imbalance. So to me, they are two sides of the same coin. I really appreciate that analogy of balance being more like a dance. I think that's really helpful because I do think people tend to see it as a sort of I don't know, when when people look up balance, let's say on Google Images or whatever, I think a lot of pictures of like a scale with two sides that are balanced and not moving, at least that's what has been Mm -hmm. indoctrinated into my mind is the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of the word balance, like two sides equaled out and, you know, fixed in place. So I really appreciate this visual of the dance. And sustainability is a word that has been used so much, as you point out, that it's almost become meaningless. Though you say that really it's nothing new at the end of the day, because this awareness and idea has existed since the beginning of people's existence, just as a matter of survival. And perhaps this might be an extension of the question of balance, but how can we use this deep history perspective to rethink and resituate what sustainability means and refers to in terms of what is the goal of what we are trying to sustain? Because, of course, oftentimes it gets co-opted or misused to refer to sustaining existing systems, sustaining quote-unquote resources to enable continued extraction for as long as possible, or even sustaining through a kind of preservation of things as they are Mm -hmm. or conservation of things as they are. So yeah, what would you say to this? Yes, I I think it also is a, a quite a problematic word. And even in my school of sustainability, the first school of sustainability in the US at Arizona State University, many of the scholars within our school, we're debating the term and really wanting to shift it to maybe something like regeneration. Sustainability does not bring in with it that imbalance or that wobble, or even the importance of disintegration and death and decay and composting, you know, and regeneration. I love how the word regeneration really includes the whole life cycle. Sustaining really is rooted so much, the way it's interpreted, at least in modern America, it is so rooted in this idea of progress and evolution and continuing the status quo. And that's, to me, really a massive part of the problem. We have to disrupt the status quo. We have to disrupt the way of consumerism that has become so nonchalant and daily for us to just buy things we don't need and throw them away. And that sustaining that lifestyle is completely unsustainable. So I do have issues with the word sustainability, but you know, it's here to stay and we may transform it. But I think that if you look at the root of it, just etymologically, we want things to continue that are good, (laughs) quite Mm -hmm. simply. And from indigenous perspectives, what I've learned from my Ojibwe elders and other others, you know, our knowledge systems are rooted in this idea that we want the sun to come up in the morning. We want to be able to drink clean water. We want to be able to go out and gather our traditional medicines, you know, whether that's tobacco or sage or elderberries. We want to be able to hunt our buffalo or our moose or a caribou. We want to sustain those relationships, just like in a good human relationship. We want that trust and longevity um, and intimacy to grow over time. And we are that way with our landscape so that we have a relationship with the beaver or the buffalo and that we knew their grandparents and we know their children and we know their grandchildren, just like we are intergenerational people. I really think of the Haudenosaunee's emphasis on the seventh generation and many of our indigenous traditions of North America have this 
this value, this instruction of honor seven generations in the past, our grandmothers, 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 and also honor seven generations in the future so that life can continue. So we want to sustain the life that sustains us. And I like that the word sustain is also rooted in the same root of sustenance, right? Nutrition, food, what, what is our sustenance, our daily food? So sustainability from indigenous perspectives is often about sustaining a good life. In my Ojibwe language, we would say minobimadaziwen. That is to sustain the good life of honoring the spirit of life in a reciprocal way. And Winona LaDuc, the great Ojibwe activist leader, she has interpreted our concept of Minobimadaziwen as continuous rebirth, continuous rebirth. So you see that intergenerational, long-term thinking, uh, not just short-term thinking, that we are just here a very short amount of time, a human being, if we're lucky, 80 years, you know, that's very privileged. Many people don't have that privilege of living that long, but we're tied to our descendants. We're tied to our ancestors in this long chain of continuous rebirth of life. So that is really the deeper meaning that I have with the term indigenous sustainability, even though it's so greenwashed by you know corporations and companies, and it's been so misused and overused, it is somewhat meaningless in many ways, unless we define it. So thank you for asking me to really say what I mean by this concept. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all of this. It's certainly been co-opted by the corporate world, I think. And I think this is why it's been so important to ask the question of what do you mean when you talk about sustainability? Yes, what do we mean? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think there are ways, as you say, to reclaim it as well. Like if we're talking about sustaining processes of creation and regeneration and sustaining the expansion of kinship and our intimacies and relationships. Maybe that's, you know, one way to kind of play with the semantics there and reclaim the word. Mm -hmm. In a past talk you gave on traditional ecological knowledge, you say that we live in storied landscapes and moral landscapes. I want to first share that I've felt really kind of dissatisfied with the word landscapes as much as I also love it and use it quite a bit. But I've just been feeling that, at least in terms of how it's officially defined, it's not as holistic as what I often hope to convey or get at, because formally it actually just refers to all of the, quote, visible features of an area. So it feels very much centered on the material and the aesthetics. I'm curious what you think about that and if you can elaborate more on what it means to live in storied and moral landscapes. Hmm. Yes, I think, yeah, the English language is a language often of separation, of individualism and and separations. So, yes, the term landscape often seems very sterile, external, again, static, not alive, not animate almost like a theater, you know, the, the old European metaphor of we are merely, you know, actors on a stage and that nature is, the landscape is just this kind of dead environment for human drama. And that's not at all what I mean by it. It's, it really means place, a sense of place. You know, it kind of gets to what we talk about in geography, political geography and indigenous forms of geography, the difference between space and place, you know, space is this kind of a cultural, supposedly objective space, but open for exploitation and open for colonization. And place is something imbued with meaning and value and history and kinship. So when I talk about landscapes, I really talk about places. To me, places are storied. They have ancient histories going back to the dawn of the planet, you know, when the planet was created billions of years ago, each plant, each stone, each rock, each mountain has a story in the land. So the land is filled with stories. And then when humans came on the scene, we immediately started listening to these stories of the land, adding our own imagination and creativity and experiences and synergies and then creating new stories so that we have our creation stories, our migration stories, our, you know, hunting stories, our trickster stories, 
and being oral people, oral cultures, we wrote things down. We were not illiterate people, especially our Ojibwe nation. We wrote things down on birch bark scrolls that were like books and maps. Also in the Southwest, the, the symbols on pottery, California, the, the symbols in the basketry, the rock art that is all over the world in indigenous territories are is a written language. And so there's literally stories in the land if we know how to listen and if we know how to read them. And that's what our or, why our oral tradition and our indigenous languages are so essential to protect and revitalize because they come from the land in terms of the voices of the mountains and the stones and the forests and the rivers and the lakes or the oceans. So we live in storied landscapes. And of course, only when we have connections to our ancestral lands. So, you know, myself as a Anishinaabe Ikwe woman currently in Akima Atam, the river people's land, you know, this is not my storied landscape. This is their storied landscape. You know, the first peoples, this is their ancestral lands where their ancestors are buried and traveled and traded salt and hunted bighorn sheep and gathered agave. And so this is their stories. And if we're good visitors, if I'm a good visitor here, I'm going to honor, recognize, and respect their sovereign stories of this land. And sometimes, you know, folks are generous enough to share those. But basically, whenever we walk in on the land uh, and in places, we are in somebody's indigenous territory. And the first peoples there have ancestral stories and histories of those places. And so the physical landscape, the mountains, the valleys, the prairies, whatever it may be, they are the visual marker that remind us of these stories and these dramas, if you will, and often comedies that happen there with characters, you know, our raven or beaver I mentioned, or uh, eagle or hummingbird or whoever it may be. And it's also environmental knowledge. I mean, that's what traditional ecological knowledge is. It's knowing who the who the other plant and animal people are that live there in that particular river or on that mountain or in that lake or prairie. And so those animals tell those stories. And over time, over generations, our elders have been listening to those stories and listening to the plants and the animals and the winds and when the stars show up and when the moon rises and sets. And so those stories become imbued, not just in language and, and stories, but in dances and in ceremonies and long form narratives. And that's how we pass on traditional knowledge in place-based embodied ways through the land in these storied landscapes or places. Hmm. This really reminds me of our past conversation with Professor Rune Rasmussen when he talked about understanding myths as really helping people to build relationships to place and to learn how to better and more intimately relate to place. And mm -hmm. on this note, you also co-edited the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? And through that dialogue, you talk about how you want to be a regenerative ancestor, part of which involves composting and hospicing things that need to die and be left behind. As you share, there are times when we should permit death to come as comfortably and beautifully as possible, embracing the mystery of death as a sacred doorway, end quote. Various past conversations we've had about becoming good ancestors have centered on what we wish to leave behind for future generations. So I would actually be really keen on hearing you elaborate on this idea of the guardianship of what we've inherited, entailing helping to disrupt and end certain things to ensure that they don't continue in their current forms. What do you feel called to share on this front? And then just to toss in another element here, as we recognize that knowledges and stories are in constant reiteration as the dynamics of community and the world change, like we mentioned earlier, I also want to ask kind of a tangent question about whether you think the origin stories and myths that teach people how to relate to place, especially passed down by way of oral traditions, whether these origin stories or original instructions have also kind of 
been evolving or been reiterated on as cultures both remain really rooted, but also ever changing and diversifying as well? And then if so, what might this mean, reflect or signify? Hmm. Beautiful questions or a constellation of questions. Maybe I'll just start with this last one. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's funny that we call them sometimes original instructions or first instructions because they're constantly changing and, you know, characters change, places change, people get dislocated or voluntary shift. Like my ancestors, we have our seventh fire prophecy, which is all about migration and change and adapting to change and traveling across half a turtle Island, you know, from the East coast to the great lakes. And then my band went out into the plains and then out towards the Rocky mountains and with the Blackfeet. So our knowledge is always changing and our stories adapt to these new places and these new peoples that we join with, mix with, become. But what is this, what remains, I think, are the values and values of things like kinship and reciprocity and gratitude. These are part of our original values, if you will, encoded in a lot of different stories, our seven ancestors' teachings of the Ojibwe. And that whether we're 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 200 years ago, yesterday, or we hope 100 years in the future, what we have learned and what we adhere to is that these values of gratitude, of reciprocity, of kinship, of simplicity in terms of not taking more than we need from Mother Earth because she is limited. I think those kinds of values are, are deeply embedded in a lot of indigenous psyches, even though they change. And we know that we are all human and we're all vulnerable to the shadow side or the trickster side, the coyote side of greed or lust or selfishness. And, you know, that's part of being human. And many of our stories even talk about that with the dual twins. There's often kind of a really noble twin and then kind of a evil one, if you will, or one that has these like other characteristics and all humans share both of these sides or multiple sides, but at least these different kinds. So we have to be vigilant and aware of how these show up. And currently in, you know, I'd say modern America and the way capitalism has been interpreted and is being manifested and has turned into this predatory capitalism and extractivism, what I often call a conquest consciousness, that needs to be composted. That needs to be, that needs to die. That needs to change. Also our relationship with time, this constant emphasis on the future and progress in this linear movement to the future and kind of a techno-utopian technology will always solve our problems. I think those are many different worldviews and values, Some many conscious, many unconscious embedded in this society that need to be transformed. And I think many of them need to be composted, the selfishness and greed, the way there's so much valorizing or looking up to the billionaires, you know, and, and the, the Hollywood stars and this cult of personality of the individual wealthy person. I think that is toxic actually. Um, and has created a, a toxic type of worldview that I think needs to be transformed, needs to be composted. And having gone through a lot of personal death lately um, with my family and friends in the last three, four years, it's just really made me respect the mystery of death much, much more and the power of it and to not take life for granted any, any day because it's such a rare gift. I think any of us who are touched by when a loved one close to us dies, there is a sense of humility also. And I think that sense of humility is also an original instruction and part of 
being open to learning and open to change when needed. So we've, yeah, humans are always changing. Indigenous people are no different. We have to evolve. We have to adapt. We have to change. But we do have our values that are part of our original instructions that give us an ethical North Star that keep us rooted in a way of caring for each other and caring for our lands and our waters and our places and caring about the future and the past, but not in this just linear progress way, but in terms of relationships. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry for the loss of your loved ones over the last years. And these lessons of humility from the passing of loved ones, um, I'm sure is going to be relatable for most people. And Mm -hmm. hopefully it's, something positive that we can learn and carry forward. And also just invitations to think about death in new ways as well. And learning from the ways that different cultures look at stories around death. And I think the last thing I'll say here is just that I love the analogy of composting in general, because it shows that there's no pure way out. There's no purest deletion and exit on anything, but it's working with all the messiness of everything, but using that as nourishment to pave a more regenerative way forward. So I really appreciate Mm -hmm. that analogy, whenever it's used pretty much. As an increasing number of people come to reckon with the wounds and the troubles of today from the micro scale to the broader societal and global scales, there's of course a growing sense of yearning for healing in order to move forward. In terms of restoration ecology, you point to the difference between what's called reciprocal restoration versus perhaps ecological preservation or conservation. I would appreciate it if you can introduce this idea of reciprocal restoration to us and how it situates the role of people and how it reflects this spiral analogy that you use also, entailing kind of a trickster consciousness that both buries what no longer serves us, as we mentioned, and honors the past by carrying some of the seeds forward. Mm. Reciprocal restoration is something I was introduced to by Robin Wall Kimmerer, although I've probably been doing it for 30 or 40 years without having an explicit name for it. Also, uh, Dennis Martinez, an autumn Swedish restoration ecologist, talked about biocultural restoration or ecocultural restoration also about 30, 40 years ago. And so the, the usual field or the conventional field of landscape restoration or ecological restoration is all about humans knowing what's best for the land, this Western scientific template of We're going to restore back to native species. Now, how far back are we going to go? You need a reference ecosystem. Are we going to go back to 1491? Are we going to go back to 1900? So you need kind of a template. It's really about designing. So even restoration ecologists will note that there is an element of agency and interpretation and creative selection in wow, what kind of plants do we want here? And making their best estimation about, oh, you know, the paleological record or the pollen sample record or the fire regime record tells us, you know, these 12 plants were in this habitat. Only six of them are here now. So we're going to plant these additional six plants. So we have, again, a full palette of these 12 plant species that are in this particular valley or habitat. So it becomes somewhat mechanical and it's, I think, not always, but sometimes rooted in this machine metaphor of nature, just like a car, you need to take out, you know, old oil, put a new oil, change the tires, rotate the tires, add spark plugs, and it'll operate better. And so some restoration ecology is a little mechanical in that way. But once you engage in it, removing exotic or invasive plant species, like in California, we have the scotch broom and French broom and eucalyptus and so many things that becomes invasive and chokes out the native plant and animal species. We want to remove that and then bring back more native species. So it's it's something that we can do with our hands, with our minds, with our bodies, 
it's so healing to go out and work with the plants and the soil, getting dirty, really embracing, you know, the elements being immersed in the elements. So it has a way of moving us out of our just rational cognitive mind anytime we do things with our bodies. And I think in this era of nature deficit disorder with, you know, children eight, 10 hours on a computer and like one hour in nature, where it's just in my generation, it was the opposite. We were outside as much as we could be and then inside minimally. So I think reverential restoration, um, reciprocal restoration is done with a bit more consciousness that we are entering a relationship with these plants and animals, and we may or may not know the right thing to do. Again, entering it with humility rather than expertism and wanting to move slowly and listen to what plants and animals want to be there and need to be there. Also really not just consulting, but working with the native people of the land. What plants and animals do they want there? It is their ancestral territory and making sure that they have access to traditional plants like soap root or manzanita or oak trees for acorns, whatever it may be. How can we actually restore culture, be part of cultural revitalization and cultural resurgence and cultural renewal, along with ecological restoration, bringing back the health and the diversity, the biodiversity, the ecological diversity of a particular place. And when we're of service to the first people, it really can almost be part of a land rematriation process of returning to the motherland and supporting what the local tribe or indigenous community wants to happen there. So I think that also elevates indigenous sovereignty. So there's multiple ways it can heal from colonization on that collective level it can heal from the eco side and the ecological disruption that happened with colonization to bring back thriving native species that are also culturally significant to native peoples. And then just individually, the mere act of doing something positive and with our bodies, the, the exercise, you're in community, you rarely do this alone, we usually do it in groups. And there's camaraderie and joking and laughing and the stories that come out. It's like going, you know, a traditional gathering with basket weavers or other plant people. There's all these stories that come out again because of the storied landscapes of the places that, oh, my grandma used to gather here. She told the story of when she encountered a bear and, you know, they had a standoff and then she sang to the bear and then the bear laid down and then, you know, went away or whatever. I've heard these stories from people and they're true stories. And so, once you're out in the land, especially with people who have an ancestral connection to it, you can really hear those. But even if you're just, you know, you're new to the area due to diaspora or jobs or migration or whatever, you just want to learn about a sense of place and go out and, wow, learn about the plants and animals. And hey, I, I took out an invasive species. And there's something kind of therapeutic too. Like I love removing French broom and Scotch broom in Northern California because it's so invasive and it's just instant gratification. And then planting, you know, hazelnut and elderberry or a huckleberry. It's that's going to be food for the animals and birds and then the humans as well. So it's a way of giving back to the land. It's also a way of receiving the nourishment and medicine of the land. And it's a way of getting out of our head and getting back into our bodies and getting back into an intimate relationship with the soils and the non-human world. So reciprocal restoration has the potential and opportunity to heal us at an individual, collective, ecological, and historical level. Mm, I really appreciate you bringing back the idea of storied landscapes because it's these stories that really make life so much more, and these practices as well, so much more meaningful and enriching and memory making as well. And I also love the invitation to value our 
I guess, other senses of knowing that come from actually engaging our body and feelings in the work. And of course, through deep listening as well, rather than at least overly relying on or or disproportionately relying on our cognitive thinking and planning mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you totally cued in my next question for you, but something that I've felt challenged to think through is the topic of invasive species, which I know some people have problematized the label of, as well as just the the broad stroke approach to kind of mass target and kill. And so far, I think I personally land on a sort of yes and way of understanding this because Not all introduced species have wrecked havoc on existing communities, but when particular ones really disrupt and take over and choke out existing diversities that even push some to the brinks of extinction, then I think that does call for some sort of attention and management from the land's caretakers. But how have you thought through this topic of invasives and how do we navigate the nuance and delicate dynamics, especially taking into account that many of the species who have become categorized as invasive were brought to these places through no fault of their own and there's no neat way to categorize the binary of invasive or non-invasive because it's also very context dependent and I would also add that probably every individual of a species is unique and different as well but what does it then mean to respect the land and care for the land when the land's configurations have so drastically changed in so many places How do we think through healing and restoration and having compassion for the ever-changing configuration of communities? And what can we learn from applying that spiral analogy here? I know I just tossed a lot at you, but you're welcome to pull whichever threads and take them in whatever direction you'd like. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Kamea. It's such a beautiful sharing. And that was perfect because I felt like, oh, and I had something more to say about the concept of invasive species who are very attuned here and aligned. Uh, Yes, (laughs) I... You know, I think it is a, an artificial boundary, even of native and non-native. And when people came in, when plants came in, we're, we're a mosaic in motion. We're, we're constantly shifting and changing with fuzzy boundaries. Plants move, animals migrate, humans move, you know, voluntary, involuntary. And yet we know there was this, this explosion of, of, change and and apocalyptic change on Turtle Island, North America with colonization, you know, starting in 1492. And then the waves of colonization, the Spanish from the South, the British from the East, the French from the North. So every place is slightly different. The time of colonization, when these quote foreign plants and animals came in, um, when quote foreign people came in either by choice or by the age of discovery and, and or by force with enslavement. So it is very complex and that's why it's good to try to not make too many generalizations and focus locally and I'll just use, you know, one example from Northern California that I know well, even though it's not my ancestral lands, but Coast Miwok and Pomo and Sinkyon and Wailaki. But a, a Pomo Wailaki elder I'm very, very blessed to work with is Redbird or Edward Willie, who is the land manager at Heron Shadow, the Cultural Conservancy's farm in Coast Miwok Pomo territory. And he never, he's a restoration ecologist, an indigenous restoration ecologist and forest manager and land steward. And he will never, I think, use the word invasive. He does not like that word. And he just, he talks about immigrants And in fact, one of my podcasts of the Native Seed Pod, I have two episodes with Redbird where he really goes into this. He says, some plants and animals are immigrants, just like people. They come in from other places for various reasons. Some are good neighbors and good settlers, and some want to take over, right? And some want to live, here's that word, getting back to our beginning, in balance, meaning they don't want to take over, but they want to be present in a healthy force, but not an overwhelming or dominant force. And he talks about certain plants like mustard is not at all native to Northern California, 
but it has quote, we haven't even have the concept of naturalization, immigration with people. You can naturalize, you can immigrate, you can become a citizen. And so Redbird talks about certain plans that have come in like mustard that has was immediately adopted by many of the local tribes because it was tasty. It added a little spice. It was culinary. It added color. It added a little spice. It didn't take over. It wasn't dominant. It was part of the mosaic and it knew its place, so to speak. And so that's a very powerful statement. And back when I was doing ecological restoration work in San Francisco with really mixed, diverse urban communities, you know, we had some interesting dialogues about the idea of being an immigrant or being a foreigner or being invasive. And some people, it it became emotional to like tear out these plants. And sometimes people do it with like vengeance or anger or hostility, you know, as if these plants are, are, uh, evil or bad, you know, no plant is evil or bad, just some are more abundant and invasive than others. And I use the word invasive, not necessarily like colonialism, they just take over and they create more of a monoculture rather than a polyculture. I'm all about polycultures, right? Meaning multiple diversities of peoples and plants and animals. That's what we see in healthy ecosystems and healthy cultures. Again, that mosaic in motion of diversity in committed to a harmonization of something that's positive and healthy. It's more an indicator of health. And so I agree that this idea of invasive species and eradicate at all costs, it's kind of like, you know, being a rabid vegan, which I know because I was one in my 20s, you know, a militant vegan, like, no. And, And so sometimes there's these hysterical historians and hysterical, like, uh, restoration ecologists. And I'm not for that. And I, I'm for really finding a, a healthy balance. And and many elders I know, they, they, you know, they like eucalyptus. They love plums. You know, the fruit trees that were early brought in by the Spanish, they brought in delicious stone fruits that have been fully incorporated into native culture with orchard care and orchard work. I mean, they were often indentured servants working in the orchard fields, almost like slaves, but they, they developed a relationship often with these foods and these plants and that have been fully adopted. So native people are always open to change and uh, these shifting habitats and shifting cultural habitats as well. So I hope that addressed a little bit about that issue. And I think if we're very mindful when we go out to either remove, quote, foreign species and introduce native species, I think when we're very mindful about that in our internal landscape, in our inner climate, it can bring up some interesting feelings and emotions and then to have a, a safe space to have a dialogue about that is very important. And I know some eco-psychologists have been doing that kind of work with habitat restoration, but also really linking it to people's own histories of migration and diaspora and immigration. I've really loved this dance of our conversation today and just a lot of these core themes like balance that keeps resurfacing throughout. And we are nearing the end of our main conversation, but I want to close off shining a light on the idea of moving forward together in a knowledge symbiosis, again, with the intention and approach of yes and. We've had past guests share about their various concerns and critiques with things like regenerative agriculture and permaculture before, but I think there's also a yes and here as well. And you've shared that you're actually excited about all of the Western re-innovations of producing food and tending the land because they're coming to their own conclusions of the importance of reciprocity. And of course, they would benefit from continuing to be in dialogue with other forms of knowledges as well. I would love it if you can talk more about the knowledge symbiosis here that is about forward movement honoring knowledges and practices from the past and present, but also weaving in new threads as well. 
And if it feels relevant here as well, how we can use, I believe it was Dr. Robin Wall Kimmer's analogy of the three sisters to think through this need mm-hmm. for different cultural qualities, frameworks, and curiosities to all kind of be in context and conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. Yes, excellent question. And it's it's a big goal. It's a noble goal. It's a complicated one. It's a messy one. Just like a three sisters garden, it's not so easily discernible where the beans end and the squash begins. It's tangled. It's an entanglement. And again, I started out with not being afraid or or actually being attracted to the idea of complexity, cultural complexity, and complexity can sometimes move into to real disharmony or conflict or chaos, but it can really move into beautiful harmony and complexity and balance. And so really... Dr. Wal Kimner talking about a knowledge symbiosis, which many people talk about too, going back to Albert Marshall, Amigma Elder talking about two-eyed seeing, knowledge synthesis, trans-systemic synthesis. There's many different ways of talking about epistemic plurality, but we cannot talk about epistemic plurality without talking about epistemic justice. And so it's very important to recognize that some knowledge systems have done real harm to other knowledge systems. And just like, you know, in the truth and reconciliation processes of Canada or South Africa, the truth has to come first before reconciliation. And that we don't have time to deconstruct reconciliation, but a reckoning or a moving forward in a good way, or at least, you know, lancing the um, <laughs> the the wound so that things can really start to heal. So if we're going to do healthy fair, equitable knowledge symbiosis, we need to also have truth and history and, and, and reveal how there has been cognitive colonialism or epistemic injustices so that we can move towards epistemological justice or cognitive justice. And that sounds a little abstract maybe um, right now, but it's very important that we translate how different knowledge systems have been privileged and others have been marginalized and repressed and erased. And so to have true knowledge symbiosis where there is harmony and, and balance and interrelationality and each contributing respectfully with care, thoughtfulness, humility, that is a process and it's a messy and tangled process. But thankfully, I'm very grateful that there is even space for this conversation now in universities, in the United Nations, certainly in grassroots community activism and coalition building. So it's a very ex- in the in the White House. My God, the the United States White House with all of the complexities and you know doing one thing right and another thing not so good. We see that there is a a conversation about knowledge polycultures and knowledge symbiosis now, which was not the case. I would say even five ten years ago in some of these international and academic arenas. So I'm very hopeful that we've started the conversation and um, there's some great people working on it and I'm working on it within a mainstream university with scientists and others who are open to it. Doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, Doesn't mean there's going to be conflicts and some bruises and entanglements uh, along the way, but it does mean that we have a safe space now to really assert our knowledge systems in a new way. story
What's been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? Ah, what a great question. Ah, well, I just started The History of Everything, written by a couple of non-native anthropologists, actually, who are very much uplifting indigenous knowledge systems and doing a bit of a revisionist history about the the past. And I've only done the first couple chapters, but I'm intrigued by it. And it's quite stimulating and refreshing. Um, so that's an exciting one. I love all the work of Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. I think she's just doing such a brilliant synthesis of traditional knowledge, Western science, storytelling, personal narrative. Um, love, love her work. Greg Cajete's Indigenous Community, Rekindling the Teachings of the Seventh Fire is such a source book and almost a how-to of like what it means to build, rebuild and build indigenous community in, in relationship with uh, settler communities as well. So that's a, that's a super powerful one. I love the work of Kim Tallbear, really addressing science and technology from indigenous paradigms and also looking at kinship, love, intimacy, and sexuality, problematizing that, decolonizing settler love with indigenous worldviews and stories and, and practices. And I've been a part of some of that movement too with the piece I did called Getting Dirty, looking at indigenous women, um, oral narratives, and ecoeroticism. So there's a lot of exciting work happening in the world right now. And I love your podcast, Kamei. I've been listening to Green Dreamer, really, and, um, and just loving your stories and your interviews and very happy to be here um, with you as a guest. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And thank you for all of these wonderful recommendations. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? <laughs> uh, funny the first one to come to mind was work hard play hard <laughs> mm, love it. I work very hard and I try to play hard too yes yeah really important don't forget the play mm -hmm. aspect um, don't what forget is the your, play yes yeah 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 what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment Mm, well, I'm relatively new to the to residing in the Sonoran Desert, and I am just blown away by the desert wildflowers and the cactus, the saguaro cactus, and um, all the different life. It's the most diverse, biodiverse desert, I think, in the world. And, you know, the, the Autumn people, the Akima Autumn, the river people, the Tahana Autumn, the desert people have such rich and beautiful traditions of relating to this storied landscape and to the beauty of this desert. So I've been enjoying these walks in the desert and uh, appreciating the plant life and the animal life here. So I'm very much a plant person. So I find great inspiration how the different plant cycles of of growth and, you know, reproduction and seeding, flowering and seeding, and then decay and, and death and rebirth. And you see that very starkly and, and cleanly in the desert because, uh, you know, some of these yucca plants, century plants, they have one shot to reproduce and that's it. <laughs> and then they're done. <laughs> so there's just such elegant, beauty of, you know, fertility and, and reproduction and intergenerational living that's so visible to me in the desert, coming from a forest person. Mm, beautiful. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but we will have more links to Melissa's books, writing and work, as well as other references from this episode shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And for now, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It was a huge honor to be in conversation with you. So I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. As we're wrapping up, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? 
Mm, I think, remember, I'm just going to repeat some medicine words from uh, Leroy Little Bear, a Blackfoot elder and teacher of mine, is that we find our cultural resilience in the medicines of the land. And whether you are a, identify as a spiritual person, a religious person, or an atheist, or not, whatever it is, a pantheist, just know that this gift of life is so precious. And Mother Earth has lots of medicines to give, and Father Sky has lots of medicines to give, and the stars have lots of medicines to give if we just open ourselves up to receive it. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>